Hello and welcome to another edition of Addiction Talk. Well, if you are a fan of rock music, you'll want to stay tuned and listen in to my guest for today. Take a listen. Wes Gear first found success as the founding member of Head PE as a guitarist, songwriter, and producer. After touring the world for eight years, he left the band for a lifestyle change and ultimately landed in rehab. Years after rehab, he joined the legendary band Korn as their touring guitarist, playing to crowds of 80,000 people. Wes's music has also been featured in many feature films, video games, and on radio and television shows. It was in rehab that Wes also realized the healing power of music and went on to become the founder of Rock to Recovery. Addiction Talk starts now. And we're excited to welcome Wes to the show. I always know that we're going to learn something. Hey, Wes, I love you. Give me the peace sign. Um, We're going to learn something from your story tonight. And first, I think for people who are your fans, they want to know, we want to go back to your early years, because I always am fascinated to figure out how people find their way to becoming musicians and artists. So what was it for you? How did you know you were even gifted at this? How did you find your way to that? You know, I think finding your way in any sort of career that maybe seems hard to obtain is, I think if you talk to a lot of people who are successful, they didn't really have a choice. I couldn't stop playing guitar. I couldn't stop with this concept that I'm going to make records, that I'm going to make music, and I'm going to turn on the radio. And my friends would say, you don't think you can make it in the band? I'd say, I think I could do that on the radio. And and I would imagine a guy like Kobe Bryant was just like, I'm going to go shoot you know, a thousand free throws a day. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm going to do it. And so I think that, and, and, you know, just to be clear to people listening, it doesn't mean that you don't have self doubt. It doesn't mean that many times I wasn't like, what the F am I doing? Is this a waste of my time? This is horrible. This song sucks. My band sucks. Yeah. You go through that, but, but you just keep going. So that would be my answer. How old were you? So you said you started playing guitar. I mean, did you, you were in music class and somebody said, Hey, try this out. Like, how did that even start? Yeah. So uh, my family was musical. And I think when you're young, music doesn't have much of a meaning in the sense of like, it's just kind of part of the background, but, but obviously being in a musical family was important part of it. It's in my DNA. And I was, my grandfather was a music direction director at the church and he played the bell tower, which is called the Carillon. So it was around me, but that was kind of like normal music. But it was when I heard my brother Jim play "Smoke on the Water" on on mm. acoustic, it was like bam, down, 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 near, near. Like whoa, whoa, whoa! Now what was that? That stuck with me. And a few years later, I heard bands like um, Iron Maiden and Van Halen and all these screaming guitars and. And I wanted to know how to make those sounds. Like I was like, I want to do that. And and I think uh, probably the fact my grandmother played violin and I had that kind of um, exposure as well maybe made made my ears perk up on the on the guitar because you know guitar and violin they're kind of in the same realm in terms of the sonic part of the spectrum they fulfill. 
And so how were you when you figured out that you were good at it? Because it's one thing to say, you know, I feel like I can play or I love this music. You know, I can see how you were passionate about what your brother was playing. But when did you realize that you had talent? Um, Probably just when I would be around other people who had been playing a, a short period of time, like myself, a year or two. And I'd be like, oh, and then, you know, to be honest. We're a bunch of cocky little kids in high school. So what was going on at the time, they'd be like, I won't use their real name, but so-and-so's playing at that party up the street. Oh, what? And my friends would pick me up and I'd come over with my amp. It sounds so like stupid now, but you know, he'd be like, and I'd be like, oh yeah. Well, and my friends would be like, oh, you smoked them. You smoked them. So we had these little guitar competitions going on. So I guess in high school, I, I could tell that I had some skills, you know, and, and the guys I worked with, I was often teaching people um, who had been playing longer than me. Did you find as you were, you know, finding your passion in this, that um, alcohol and drugs became kind of part of the culture? Were you introduced to it through the music? Um, I wouldn't blame music on it. For me, it went the opposite way. Uh, we had moved a lot in my childhood as my family was working so hard to give us a better life but it was still being the new kid. Well, I was in Garden Grove for a number of years, kind of like, uh, I think, at end of elementary school, into high school, and I really felt like I had some roots there. But then we moved again, and I got, like, emotional over that. Like, ah, you know, and I was scared, and I didn't know how to feel it. And that's when I picked up weed. And, you know, when I looked at my timeline, when my use went up, it was always after something that felt emotional to me happened. So... I didn't say consciously, we're moving, I'm sad, I better smoke a joint, but I was emotional. Somebody had, I'm like, yeah. And then what would happen is I went to this new school where I knew nobody and I just smoked weed all day, every day and played guitar all day, every day, every every moment I had spare. So it was kind of hand in hand. And, uh, you know, look, as soon as I started doing weed, I started really doing poorly in school. I stopped getting along well with my family and my mom and all that artistically speaking, it had had its value because I would get really stoned and just be like, yo, yeah, I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling it, man. So. No, I think that's really interesting because a lot of artists, you will hear them say that, you know, there was a time when they felt like when they were on weed or doing other drugs that they felt they were so creative. And you've even said that you felt like it tapped into a part of you, like a part of your creativity. But when you look back on it now, do you see it differently for artists who say, how can I create a masterpiece without it? Well, those, you've kind of said a couple of different things. The reality is that our brains are full of self-doubt. This isn't going to work because of that. Don't get on the dance floor and dance. Oh, you have a couple of drinks. You're like, F it. I'll go dance. Right. So it's really you're turning off that doubter, that overthinker. And you can do it a lot of different ways, right? And I'm talking artistically. So when you're creating, any musician is like, that's stupid. You play that chord all the time. That's not cool. You're trying to find that thing where you're like, ooh, this feels cool and different. Mm -hmm. And so when you're loaded, it's easier to get to that place to shut it off, to kind of just feel the music without the judging mind, right? Um, and like I said, people use that to go dancing. They use it to go on dates or to an amusement park, you know, getting high and shutting off your mind. Um, in terms of like creating in a sober realm, I have to be sober. Or I'll be dead. It, I know that like I will not survive 
doing what I was doing. So I have two choices, give up art and music altogether or learn, you know, how to do it sober. And, and again, this, if you're listening and you're not a musician, then maybe you're a teacher or a student, you can still liken the elements of the story to what you're going through. How do we live life sober when at worst, when at first drugs and booze was working for us? Now it's not. Now we got to say goodbye. How do we keep doing what we love? Well, guess what? It wasn't the drugs playing the guitar. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was me playing the guitar. And so what you realize is that inspiration finds you working. So you just keep playing, you keep doing what you do, and that becomes the norm. And then what you realize is that, oh, a lot of times I thought I was playing these amazing things because I was stoned or drunk or high and they weren't as great as I thought. When you learn to create and you're like sober, right, but you're truly channeling creative and divine spirit, when you think something's good, it's good. You know what I mean? That's Mm -hmm. my experience. You know, it's good for you. I'm not saying you're going to, you know, sell a bajillion records, but it's, it's a, it's a more true place to express from because it's not synthetic. How difficult though, I wonder, Wes, was it to change your mindset, to shift to believing that, you know, what you were using was helping your creativity versus knowing that it was divinely in you. Like you said, you know, you, you would find it, it would find its way to you. Yeah. Well, for me, the spiritual path is key. It's part of that equation. So when Head, my first band, was starting to fall apart, Limp Biscuit reached out to me to go write some music with them. And I snuck off to do that. You know, I wanted to go, oh, I'm in Limp Biscuit now. Screw you guys. And I went right for the drugs because that's what I thought mm-hmm. I had to have. Right. So that was the old mentality. When I got sober, it was more like having conversations with God or the universe or whatever we want to call it going, well, certainly I wasn't put on this earth to be miserable and be a musician who can't create because I got to be sober. That just doesn't feel right. So it's like, if this is the path I'm supposed to be on to be my best self, my truest self, my highest self, then surely music must be part of it. And so it was just like trusting that there was a, you know, a, a divine path in there Um, and then, you know, I had the fortune of getting sober at a time when other people had done it before me, you know, Mm -hmm. we've seen so many people die, whether they're actors, athletes, uh, models, you know, rock stars, but we also have started to see the culture talk so much about addiction and mental health that we know we're not alone, right? Trent Mm -hmm. Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, super dark and and he got sober and made the best album of his life, you know, and there's mm. endless examples of that. And so you kind of, you look for the inspiration. And I think the problem that so many people fall into with addiction is that they think they're so different. It's like, yo, man, if Trent Reznor can get sober and write an amazing record, then I can do it too. You know, why not? I'm going to look for the reasons I can more than I'm going to look for the reasons I can't, you know? Well, you know what I'm curious too, Wes, as you're kind of sharing more about your story, how did you even realize you had a problem? Because I know a lot of times people think, hey, it's just part of the party scene. You know, like you said, you know, many kids use weed in high school or tried, you know, alcohol and stuff. But when did you realize, hey, I'm a little different. This is not just partying for me. This is to another level. Yeah. So the first times I got drunk, my friend singled me out and like, you're too drunk. Go to the bed. And I was like, well, I'm just drinking like you, but it didn't make sense. 
but that kind of thing carried on with me. Like I, when my band head went on tour with corn, Jonathan Davis, the singer came over and was like, we got to sit down. I heard about your drinking. And I'm like, here we are in an arena playing a rock show. And y'all lecturing me about drinking when everybody's partying every night. I just didn't get it. But I had this other gear of being out of control. And luckily I was in an environment where they were seeing me somewhat. Right. Even though at some point I'd go hide or run off with a girl or something and do whatever. You know, imagine if you're a person who just comes home after work and gets tanked and nobody can see it. And then you show up to work and you're a little hungover or whatever. Luckily, I had people singling me out. So that kind of followed me all all the time. But, you know, when I got uh, when we got our first record deal with Head, I was at the height of my meth addiction. So you couldn't Mm. tell me I had a problem. So that happens for a lot of people, you know, this thing where it's working, you know, I got five, I got five kids and I got to drink my wine and it's getting me through. And here you, you know, are at the height of your career, what you're thinking. And exactly. you're like, I got this under control. Yeah. I mean, the singer and I got flown to meet with Jive Records in New York, picked up in a town car after chasing a record deal forever. And I'm, I'm had been on meth every day for a couple of years. You couldn't tell me I have a problem. You know what I mean? Um, but deep down inside, you know, and I think with what happens with addiction is that you have the bad things that happen, like losing your job, your girl, your wife, your career, your money, whatever that has nothing to do with addiction. But those are the things to motivate us to say, Hey, I have a problem. How about the fact that you couldn't stop doing meth every day for three years? No, no, that's I'm fine. Cause look at my record deal and I'm, you know what I mean? So what motivated you then? Because what? Well, that's hard. I mean, like you said, yeah. I know people were in your ear saying, "Hey, hey, friend, hey, Wes, something's not right here." But you get no, you got a record, dear. You know, you have been doing this for a couple of years. So was there like a light bulb moment for you or a rock bottom? So during Head, that was yeah, almost ten years we were touring, and I was trying to control it every way I could. When I left that band, um. I went back into a day job. My soul was crushed. Who am I? I'm not a musician. Uh, And then my drug use went higher than ever. And then so finally I had to tell, I told my brother like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing meth and heroin. It's really bad. And he said, okay, you know, if you can straighten out. I said, yeah, I've done it before. I'll straighten out. Then no problem. But I couldn't, I couldn't stay stopped no matter how hard I tried. And I couldn't understand. So the deal was if I couldn't get under control myself, then I had to go to rehab or, go on my merry way with no support from anybody. It was, you so know, you made that deal with your brother? Yeah, because I was working with him at the time. So, you know, it was basically I couldn't stay off the drugs for good and I kept going back. And so it was either, you know, you're fired, get out of here and do what you want to do or go to rehab. And I was like, ah, maybe I should go to Thailand and, and ride elephants. Mm. Nah, I'm out of control. And it hit me. On the deepest level, I'm out of control. Like you felt have, it in your gut? It was like a soul yeah. feeling? We call it the moment of clarity. Okay. My moment, my moment of clarity sounds like maybe a little more subtle saying you're out of control. Well, like, duh, you're out of control. But it was like, I didn't say it out here to my friends. It was like the core of my being. I was laying there in the bed like, dude, you're out of control. You, you have no control. Every night you go out, it's going to be one beer. And two weeks later, you come back or whatever, you know. So I accepted help. That's, that was it. I was willing to get help. I was willing to go to rehab. And I felt a great relief 
like, okay, the fight and the facade and the charade that I'm putting out to the world is over. And then when I got into rehab and got into um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, even though I thought my problem was meth and heroin, I understood, I, I learned in there like, oh, I got this allergy. That's why when I have one beer, I'm off to the races. You know, I, I, I'm different from other people and I'll never not have that allergy. And in that literature, I found myself in there. It wasn't forced upon me. But when I read it, I was like, oh, this explains so much. All right, I'll try this thing. So it seems like you were willing, like you'd gone through so much oh, yeah. that you had surrendered, like you surrendered to it. It seems I, like I, I, I surrendered. I was done fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, I had been fighting it for so long. How long you was know? long? Had you been dealing with it? Well, you're talking, I started smoking weed at 14, got kicked out of high school at 16, lived in my car, got fired from Domino's, fired from Carl's Jr., fired from McDonald's, fired from my other day job. I got fired. I mean, you know, I lost my band, not directly because addiction, but it, it definitely was not helping. Uh, I mean, or you could say directly from addiction, but not for the reasons you might think. But like, you know, so at this point, I think I, I was 38, you know, and and you have this life where what is that? Uh, 20, 20 more, uh, more than 20 years. 24, 24 years of just struggling in every way, just feeling job and career and society and relationships and DUIs. Did you you feel like you were yourself? Because you said you had also kind of felt like you were putting on this facade. So was there a part of you that felt like you weren't truly you? Well, when I, when I said that, yes, in different incarnations, but in that moment, what I was saying is when I was working for my brother, using a lot of drugs, showing up to a day job and, you know, trying to be, pretend everything was okay. That's a facade. And what we know is most people, who are alcoholics or drug addicts, they're hiding it. They know. On one hand, they'll say, no, no, I'm fine. I've got a problem. On the other hand, they're hiding it. They don't want people to know what they're doing, how much they're doing, how bad it is, how lonely they are, how desperate they are, how uh, lost they feel. And that's it. You know, you put, oh, no, I'm great. People would ask me towards the end. Hmm. um, For sure, Jennifer. People would ask me towards the end when I would go out and I hadn't slept in so long and and uh, they'd be like, how are you, man? I'd be like, oh, I'm great. And they'd be like, dude, mm-hmm. how are you? And I'd be like, what? What are you talking about? And inside, I knew, but I had to be like, what? You know, put up the wall. What are you talking about? I'm good, man. I'm good. Mm-hmm. It, I was not good. You know, and, and the story towards the end of my of that is I, I, I got up in the morning after not sleeping and resting and going to work. And I was like, oh, my God, I saw the bags and I look like a ghost, like I'm ready for Halloween. I saw some makeup a lady left at my house. I was like, oh, I'll just put this on the on the dark spots. And next thing you know, I have makeup. So I go out looking like, you know, Herman Munster or something. Yeah. And that, you know, people are like, dude, what's up with I'm you? Really- oh, I'm fine. Yeah. And, you know, again, anybody listen, maybe you didn't do mad their hair and wear makeup, but this is all, it's about looking for the similarities, not the differences. What were you doing out there pretending it was all okay when you right. knew it wasn't? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So when you got to treatment, I thought something that I've heard you say that was so interesting, Wes, because you had been playing, you know, most of your life by that time, but then you realized that there was like this healing part of music for you. How did right. you discover that? Were you like in a therapy class and, or you were just playing your guitar one night that you said, this has the power to help me through this sobriety journey? Yeah. So it's interesting. So as a, 
uh, musician and to rock and I like really artsy kind of dark trippy stuff for me just to strum what we call like a campfire chord just your typical D or C chord is like boring does nothing for me right that's what I would have said before in rehab when I'm destroyed shame guilt low self-esteem lost just like uh you know just stuck in this dark place when I would hit one chord I had my guitar with me in the rehab. I'm with 22 guys. You're like, that's my homie. He's cool. That guy's a weirdo. I will never talk to that dude. You know, that's what's going on in there. Yeah, that's what Because you're, you're stuck with a bunch of people from all over. You don't know. Right, and, right. and you're insecure. So it's not like you're going to be like, yeah, you're my bro. You're, you're going to be like. So I would hit one chord and be like, damn, I'm feeling this chord right now. It's changing the energy in the room. And then I would do like a silly country riff, like bound, damn, bound, bound, and all the guys would start dancing around. And it'd be like, whoa, everybody's mm. ego's gone. Everybody's cool guy stand up. And we'd all start dancing. It brought us together. The world and the clicks went away. And, and, you know, gangster dudes would be doing like two steps. And, you know, like, and I'm like, okay, so this is crazy. I watched not just the power music had, but in that setting how more exponentially powerful it was for people who are just, they need a different energy, a different emotion, right? Who've been seeking mm -hmm. drugs and things outside of themselves in an unhealthy, deadly way. Why isn't this magic of music being presented in treatment centers? Mm. You know, that's a really good question because I would love to hear how you even felt like it healed you. Like what was, did it, did it just give you a place to kind of just release you know, to yeah. get all those emotions. Cause I know you said, you know, there was yeah. a lot that you'd gone through as a child. So was it just like a release for you? Well, in, in rehab, I started writing um, songs that were very meditative, right? I played mm -hmm. in rock and punk and bands that did hip hop and all sorts of heavy stuff. I mean, I love it all. I love mellow music, classical music, Mozart, but I would write songs that were really slow and almost trance inducing. And so I would use it like, you know, and not where I'm changing a bunch of notes, but just cycling on a couple notes and patterns over and over. And, uh, and, and it changed me as a writer for sure. But, um, I, that's what I was doing in the rehab to kind of soothe my, my soul. Hmm. Did it, I also wonder, you know, when you think about music being soothing, but expressing yourself, was it a way that you could express what you were feeling? Yeah, my, my music's always been a bit melancholy. That's what I like. So, you know, you're letting it channel out. I have a horrible voice. So if I could get out there and, and sing, <laughs> you know, just don't came. Scare my, the people now. Don't scare the people. My, my brain just came, came. Yeah. Have you seen that thing with Jamie Foxx where he goes, F U, F U, F F F F F U? He's saying the word F. Uh -huh. so yeah, that's probably what I would have been singing at that time. But. It's been going around. It's a reel on, mm -hmm. on the web right now. But anyhow, uh, yeah, I was, you know, I was channeling the emotions I had, that that sadness and letting it come out through my fingertips. Mm -hmm. So what I think is really interesting is you leave rehab, right? And a few years later, you decide to go back into the touring. Were you nervous? Because here you had kind of cultivated, you know, a safety net to some extent with being in sobriety and getting yourself you know, where you felt like you had everything in control, you're still loving music, but then you decide I'm going to throw myself back into, you know, touring and stuff. What was going through your mind? 
So I got almost three years sober, like two years and 11 months, and I relapsed. Oh, so, okay. So that, and I looked at, okay, well, why'd you relapse? You were doing the 12 steps. You had a transformation. You felt great. Everything was great. What happened? Well, you stopped working on your recovery and your program. And so I was like, what can I do? Um, what can I do this time that needs to be different? So I don't relapse. Okay. Don't stop working a program and stay connected to the fellowship of your recovered people. Cause I stopped doing that. And when I stopped working on my program and hung out with drinkers all the time, wow, can you believe it? I started mm-hmm. drinking. No way. So that message, that lesson had been learned. And I, 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 uh, you know, wanted to get back in music. I started meditating universe, take me back. I want to get in a nice big band or something. And sure enough, corn called me in a few days out of this meditation. It's like some magical stuff that happened. And so I went on the road at that time, about two and a half years sober, knowing I got to stay active. So as I went on the road, first of all, if that call had come in a year earlier, I probably wouldn't have felt ready. At this time, two and a half years, I had a good, I felt good and saw my recovery meeting intuitively, not up here. It was like, okay. And I'm, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to meetings all over the world. I'm going to work my program. Well, you, so wait a minute. So you went to meetings all over the world? Yeah, I went to meetings in India and Japan and Hong Kong and Germany and Paris and England and you name it. You know, and that's what's cool is like, especially for people who wish they belonged. It's like, why would you do this alone? You have a built-in network, especially in California in these areas and the East Coast where we have so many meetings. You have this network that will support you no matter what. So I'd go to a meeting. Actually, I went to a meeting in Australia right on my third birthday on tour with Corn. you know, and uh, it's like I had a support group. It's like, hey, can somebody give me a ride back to the hotel? A crocky man, give me a ride to the hotel, no problem. You know, I probably sound like an English guy, but you know, they love they, (laughs) they they love, you know, meaning fellow Alkies helping you out. Yeah. And that's how I stayed connected. And I did my routine and got on on my knees every morning and prayed. Thank you for my recovery. Help me stay sober today. And I did my deal, read my spiritual books, get some meditation in. If I could hit a meeting, I would. And before every show, I prayed, man, like, thank you. This is all a gift of sobriety, you know, that I got to come back at this level. And you asked something, was I scared? No, because I had a solution. I can't comment. Look, not everybody going to do AA in the 12 steps. I get it. Some people can get recovery on their own. Great. I can't comment on that. I couldn't do it on my own. I've done it with the 12 steps. And this is a program for living that works for me when I work it guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't scared because I knew what to do. I knew go out on the road. Don't try to pretend you're normal. I'm an alcoholic. Let's keep working on my program. And, and it worked, you know, but Wes, I think first of all, that's so powerful, but because it shows if you want it, like you put the, the boundaries in place, to support what you really wanted and to to maintain your sobriety. I mean, the fact that you're in Japan, I mean, were they even speaking English that you're going into, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and you're saying, hey, I need to find my people. I need to be connected in this process to keep my sobriety. And now to see you, how many years are you celebrating now? Almost 15. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. So you just, you know, just showing, you know, the 
the power there is when you know what to do and you follow it, even in the midst of, you know, touring and all of that, which could have been really, really challenging for you. So, you know, as we're going through your story, how did you get to the point of realizing, I know we've talked about you going on tour, we've talked about you kind of finding your path in all of this. When did you realize you needed to help other people find their path through music and recovery? How did that happen? Well, one of the tenets of AA is that, like, if you read in the beginning of the literature, um, the doctor, doctor's opinion, he's talking about these hopeless people that he, the expert on addiction and alcoholism, couldn't help. They're too far gone. Started recovering with this, or what were the earliest earlier versions of the 12 steps. I think they had six steps. And what the key was, even for them, brand new, was to go help others. That's how they recovered. Right, right. And in this model today, most people, I shouldn't say most people, it seems like a lot of people don't get that. They're like, I need to be sober. Where's mine? This meeting's lame. This is lame. I don't like this. I don't like this. No, 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 no. My job that I was taught that I believe in, you don't have to ascribe to this, My job is to get sober and start helping other people who are looking for help. And the magic is that when, you know, because the disease centers in my mind so much, it's like selfish fear and self-centered fear. You know what I mean? Like I need this. I'm worried about that. I'm too fat. I'm too this. I'm too old. I'm too whatever. Well, the best way to get out of that and feel good about myself is go, yo, what's your name? I see you're new here. Hey, let's hang out. You want to grab a coffee? How can I support you? Boom, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling the spirit. I'm feeling that connection. That's a tenet of recovery to me that is crucial, that is so forgotten by so many, you know. So when the corn gig was going away, because the original guy was coming back, Brian Head Welch, he was coming back. I was going into self-pity like, great, I'm losing this amazing gig. I'm in my 40s. What the F do I do now? And, and I, and I, you know, I wanted to be like, poor me, how dare you screw me again? You know? And and I was like, wait a second. I know I'm supposed to be sober. I'm staying sober. And I felt like I was drawn to music. Okay. I don't think God, the universe or whatever sent me here to suffer. Mm. Okay. If I'm not sent here to suffer, I'm supposed to be a musician. I'm supposed to be sober. How can I help people and make a living? And that prayer came to me because I was taught through recovery that my life isn't just about like, yo, I need a Bentley. I need millions of dollars. I need a bunch of babes. It's like, no, no, no. My job is to take who I am, my skills, my attributes and go, how can I show up big for the world around me and help those mm-hmm. around me? Even if you're a barista at Starbucks, your job is to be like, I'm going to make you the best damn cappuccino and put some love in this. Here you go, baby. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. when we bring that, I need, I'm not, I should be an actor. I'm just a breeze. That's like that's all about you. But yeah, when you realize, you. like you said, I think that's so good because it takes the, the, the focus off of you and now you're giving to other people's and it gives you purpose. So all of a sudden in the midst of you thinking like, Hey, corn's going away. What am I going to do? You find purpose. I find purpose. That's deep. What, it's so deep. And it's a, it's a choice, really. Mm-hmm. You know, in Rock Recovery, where we're taking music to hurting people, veterans and, you know, pregnant mothers facing addiction and all sorts of people, addiction, mental health. Obviously, we're helping people and 
and so, but we get that fulfillment, right? Because we're helping people, but you can take that same energy into whatever you do. But the point is, is that I think the meaning of life or a meaning of life is really who can I help out there in the world with who I am and what I do. Mm -hmm. Even if you're on the computer processing insurance claims, you have somebody that you can impact. That's what, well, what's the energy you're taking into that? Yeah. My job sucked. Okay. Have fun with that. Or like, yo, I'm helping people. Let me get this claim down. Where's the love. And that love will come back to you. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't like your job and eventually you're going to move on. Fine. Follow your heart, your passion. But the point is whatever we do, we're doing it for the world around us. We're supposed to bring that love and giving into it, into our and it, And like you said, it helps in the recovery. But we have a question for Michael before I kind of yeah. get more into the rock to recover because I want to talk more about that. But he said, what do your bandmates think of your choice to be sober? Yeah. Was yes. What was their reaction? Well, that's a great question. So in head, we were all just <laughs> wasteoids. We all just partied so much, did so much drugs. They were worried about me. My drummer used to say, I used to go to your house and have to check on you. And I think I was going to find you dead. So they're all like, oh, wow, Wes is sober. First of all, miracle that he's still alive. And second of all, thank God that he's sober. Secondly, the corn gig I got, and this is an important part. I'm glad you brought me back here. My brain said I couldn't do music and be sober. But then I had enough recovery where it's like, wait a second, like we talked about, if I'm supposed to be a musician sober, I can do music and be sober. Well, the re- reality was I got the corn gig because I was sober. Mm. They wanted a sober good. guy. Good. The guy that was filling in for Brian, uh, they had a couple. The guy who was filling in for Brian, Shane Gibson, was actually drinking himself to death. He had the rare scenario where he had never toured. He was a guitar prodigy went on tour in a very short time, drank himself to death. Rarely happens with men. Um, but th- so they were watching him drink and drink and drink and lie and whatever. And so their desire was, we need somebody who knows about touring, who isn't a drunk. And mm-hmm. so that's why I got that gig. So what did they think about it? They thought, hell yeah, because my name came up in the corn camp years earlier. And they were like, oh, hell no, that West guy's a nut. You can't hire them. And then years went by. I had rebuilt my reputation and my name came up. And they're like, no, he's on, he's, you know, a couple of years sober. Let's get him out here. That's so, so huge. So you actually got the gig because they said, oh, we heard, have you seen Wes now? He's doing big things. He's sober. We can trust him to come on tour with us. Yeah. And, you know, I think anybody respects somebody who's sober because what comes along with it is not just abstinence. You start living right. Hopefully not everybody because there's a disease under there. And if we just quit drinking and don't get down to the causes and conditions, sometimes we act out with anger, violence, sex, spending, shopping, whatever. But if you get into true recovery, you're really working on your darker side and evolving into your lighter, most powerful being, if you will. Mm, I love that you're evolving. So I wanted to go back before we had that question about rock to recovery. Explain to me more about that. Cause I know you, for people who've heard you kind of briefly mention it, tell me exactly what you're doing. And I know you said this kind of led you to part of your purpose. So rock to recovery was just the rough idea of, I wanted to create a, a music program 
that can take music into treatment centers, you know, and so it's what we would call an ancillary service, right? We're detached and we can drive out, take music to your location, your location. So what I do is I go in there and I connect with people. I can say, look, I've been where you're at. You know, I had abuse and sexual abuse and addiction and drug addiction and alcoholism. I was in a treatment center. I get it. Let's connect. And we talk about what music is, which is just thoughts and feelings put to music, right? Or songs. Songs are thoughts and feelings put to music, right? And so uh, we write a song together. And what I'll do is show people how to play. And and by the they'll come in going, what? I don't play. I ain't singing. Screw you. Get out of here. And by the end, we'll have a song that we wrote together from our heart, from our soul, what we're feeling in that moment. And we'll write it, perform it, and record it all in that session. So wow, that is powerful. Yeah. Well, how it's did powerful. it lead to you doing the concert? Because you went to not only going inside treatment centers to say, hey, I'm offering this additional service to help people process and heal. But then it leads to this like huge concert now that's every year. Yeah. So I started Rocks Recovery as a nonprofit because it sounded cool because I've been exposed to uh, that kind of concept of giving in my recovery. And um, we wanted to be able to raise more funds. And mm. I was remembering when I got sober, how it feels like your life's over because you can't really hang out with all the old friends and go to the old places and whatever. And I remember going to a lot of backyard barbecues with sober people and everybody's drinking 900 Red Bulls, just like nah, insecure like that. And I was like, ah. So the idea was to create the coolest sober event around, but not have it feel like a sober event, have it feel as bright and broad as life itself. And so we honor um, sober celebrities or musicians, you know, who are in recovery. We play some music. It's a hundred percent sober. And we've honored Mike Ness from social distortion and uh, Richard Patrick uh, from filter and uh, who Moby and Katie mm. Seagal and Corey Taylor. And last year we had Keith David, who's a three-time Emmy Award winner, and mm. Jay Moore, uh, Emmy-nominated comedian. And they share the recovery story and then play some music and comedy. And the energy in the room is just electric. And, you know, we have a red carpet, so there's, like, models and celebrities coming out to support. And uh, and so the goal is to raise funds for the work we do and helping the people but also to show that recovery can be light and bright and rock and roll and artistic. And, uh, you know, in those concerts, I love to go out and talk to the people attending them. And because half of the people that come to the concert will be actively in treatment. So when you're in treatment, they'll have what they call an outing. Like, Hey, Mm -hmm. let's go pet horses or let's go to the beach or go on a hike. Well, when we have our concert, many, many treatment centers bring their clients there as an outing. So maybe they were shooting dope or vomiting blood a week mm. before that, thinking their life's over. And they come to this concert and they're like, seeing like, hey, that's mm. a famous actor. And there's a ball. Wait, you're sober? What? And that you do? in the huh? What? And this whole place, this is, and their minds are blown. And they'll tell me, you know, mm. they tell us, you know, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe sober life could be so amazing. It's like, yeah, this thing lies to us, man. It tells us so many things that aren't true, especially for people who are addicted or fighting addiction or fighting alcoholism or behavioral disorders or domestic abuse, it's hard to imagine a bright, colorful life on the other side of letting go of those, you know, problems. Wow. 
but I imagine it's hope, you know, and even your story Wes, and you know, that's why we do addiction talk is I feel like people need to see someone that maybe they can relate to that. If you can do it, that I can do it. You know, if you can stand up and say, hi, I'm in recovery and I've been doing this and I work my program and I'm in Japan and I'm in a meeting, you know, if I can do that, that so can you. So as we kind of wrap up this, Wes, I want to ask you a couple more questions. But one, what do you feel has been the best piece of advice or wisdom that you've either learned yourself or somebody told you on this journey? The first one is nothing. I repeat, nothing is more important than my recovery. Nothing. Mm. Some people can't get it. No, your kids aren't more important. No, your job isn't more important. Your husband, your wife, no. Because if I'm loaded, any kid, family member, dog is getting a shit version of me. Mm. I can't be there for anybody if I'm not sober. So I got to put the oxygen mask on me first before I can worry about anybody else. And it has to be number one. And so many people don't get that. They want to put their job or their career, everything before, or go into the gym. No, your tight glutes and your biceps are not more important. Now, maybe if you just have a drinking problem or you smoke a little too much weed, yeah, that's a small problem and you cut it out. But I'm saying I'm a, I have, I'm a, you know, drink to die, use to die addict. There's Mm. nothing more important. So my recovery comes first. And for me, I don't know why I got it. I'm not, I'm not claiming I'm so smart or anything. But I got it. I got it that like if I put my recovery first, Mm. then my heart, my soul, my spirit, Mm. my mind is in the best place. So every other aspect of my life will benefit from it. So my recovery always comes first. Oh, that's so, so good. And such good words of wisdom, because I'm just thinking if you're putting like you said, if you put it first, you got to put on your oxygen mask first. And then everything else. And if we look at you as an example, you are blowing up. Tell me what you got going on. I hear we got a new band. We got a book coming out. I mean, take it away. Let us tell us what's up with you. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, how much time do I have? (laughs) We put out a book. Uh, So because I was going, you know, we were going into treatment centers and seeing these incredible transformations with people coming in, you know, they're on Seroquel, they're depressed that, you know, and we watched them transform in our sessions. We wanted to tell our story. So this is rock to recovery music as a catalyst for human transformation. Look, I'm doing it backwards in the mirror. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) Um, It's 18 vignettes of people who had incredible transformations addiction, sex trafficking, trauma, sexual, you know, wounded warriors where music and our program was a part of it, a part of their recovery. Mm. So it's a book of hope, but then we also interlace the scientific elements of how music works, trying to push that narrative forward. So if you know anybody needs a book of hope, you want to get some inspiration, you can get get this on Amazon. Let's see if I can do it again. Rock to Recovery. You can't forget uh, the name. I mean, it's the nonprofit. We got it. Rock to Recovery. Got it. And it's my new band. What? Oh, new band. Okay. Okay. It's called it's called Human. And of course, we have to spell it weird. But if you put H-U-3, you can find us anywhere. We got some vinyl app. But basically, if you like Muse and Radiohead 
and stuff like that. We do a lot of electronic, but we're also very rock. That's what we're doing. And funny enough, I met all these cats through various aspects of my sober journey, but it's my journey. So like if anything changed, then everything changes, right? It's a butterfly effect. So I met these guys on the road to, you know, doing this kind of work we do being creatives and there it is. You can find us on Spotify. We out there. H U three. Hey, and by the way, we're playing October 14th, Friday with Julian K. It's the guys from orange. When does this come out right now? It's live. This is, we are live. We are live Wes. <laughs> Friday night, Tiki bar, Costa Mesa, Julian K, which is guys from orgy and dead by sunrise. Who was Chester Bennington's band. Uh, your favorite color, which is uh, David from Corn's son. They are an amazing band. Our band is, you know, me, I played in Corn and had PE, and then Clinton played in DI, and our singer, Matt, he's incredible. So come out. It's a great show right there in Costa Mesa. Right. I love it. So the sky is the limit for you. Any final, the the limit. Any final words? Exactly what you said. Recovery is not merely about abstinence. It's about recovering your truest self, and it is truly limitless. Mm. That's the best thing about it. It is limitless. The same way addiction and alcoholism is limitless in how far it will take you down to death and beyond. Recovery and doing something where you're working on yourself every day, that it's truly limitless what you can achieve in your life. I love it. It's there for everybody. I love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Wes. This has been a delightful conversation. I have learned so much from you. You've been so transparent on this conversation. Much success. I know you're blowing up big time. You're already big time, but we'll be watching. Well, my and mom thinks so. <laughs> and that's going to do it. Another edition of Addiction Talk. Thank you for joining us, everyone, and have a good night. Thanks, Joy. You're awesome.